And uh, it's Mother's Day, so I thought I'd actually talk about moms and women today. Um, next week, we're going to go back into the book of Matthew, taking a bit of a break. We've been traveling through that verse, uh, book verse by verse, and we take a break, and we'll be getting back into that next week. Uh, but today, we're going to talk about uh, women called and gifted. Um, I think most of you know, but this denomination we're a part of, the Evangelical Covenant Church, and uh, this church as well, um, sees that when it comes to ministry from you know, greeting or Sunday school or leading or teaching or being an elder or pastor is about calling and gifting and character. It's not about gender. Uh, now, some churches will say that uh, if you're a female, there are certain roles that you cannot uh, serve in, namely those of uh, certain leadership positions, teaching positions, eldership positions. Uh, we as a church say it's about gifting, calling, and character, not about gender. Uh, gender. Um, I think if you've been around Christianity at all, you know that this can be an extremely controversial issue. There are uh, brilliant scholars on both sides of this debate, whether women can serve in certain positions or not. And these scholars love Jesus, they love the Bible, they're, uh, you know, doing mission. But this is one of those controversial issues within Christianity. Uh, there's no Christians that believe that this is an issue that you know, will determine your eternal destiny. You don't see statements ab about this issue in any of the early creeds or the early statements of the, the early church. Uh, but this is an important issue. Now, again, in this church, uh, we hold that uh, women can serve in any kind of position, pastor, elder, teacher, leader, uh, based on their calling and gifting, not, not their uh, gender. And most of the people in our church hold that view. Probably 90 plus of you do. There are some people in our church who don't hold to that view, who hold that women can't serve uh, in, in a certain positions. And we don't kick those people out of our church. Uh, we love those people. They're welcome here. And we have conversations and debates and interesting discussions. But as a church as a whole, we hold that uh, we want to encourage women to lead. We want to encourage women to teach. We want to encourage women to go into full-time ministry because God has blessed certain women with amazing gifts and amazing teaching abilities. And I want to talk a little bit about this today. And uh, so this is going to be a bit more of a sort of a teaching message than a preaching message. I'm going to cover uh, some material. Uh, but this idea of women being able to serve in all ministry positions is not something that, uh, you know, sometimes the people accuse, you're just being culturally sensitive or whatever that might be. Uh, it's actually the heart of this church is always the Bible. Uh, right at the core of our church is this, that we believe in the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testament as the Word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. And there's only one perfect place we can go to to find out doctrine, to find out what we believe. It's not, first of all, we go to tradition, you know, I grew up this way and therefore this is the way things need to be in the church, or, you know, I just don't feel comfortable with that, That's, so this has to be this way. It's not about tradition, it's not about preference, it's about the scriptures. And all throughout the history of our denomination, there's a question that we are always asking. And the question is, where is it written? And sometimes people come to me with issues and say, I don't like this going on in the church. And I like to ask, well, where is it written? 
where is it written? This might be your preference. This might not be your tradition. But where is it written? Because we want to go first to the scriptures, and that should shape our doctrine. That should shape our views. That should shape the ideas of what we believe. And we firmly believe as a church that the Bible teaches that, that uh, ministry is open to males and females, that all uh, women are welcome to be elders, pastors, teachers, Sunday school leaders, whatever it might be, missionaries, greeters, because it's based on calling and gifting and not character. And so I'm going to present uh, a little bit about what we believe. And again, there are some of you who disagree, and that's okay. You're not going to like this sermon. I know that, uh, but sometimes I don't like other people's sermons, so it's just the way it is, right? <laughs> when we go into interpreting the Bible, there's a couple of things that are very important, especially when it comes to this discussion. The first one is the principle of unity, and that is God does not contradict himself. Whatever the Bible means, it cannot contradict what God has clearly said or done in other places. In other words, the Bible is a whole. It is God-breathed. Every word in our scriptures is, is uh, God, through the Spirit, carried along these authors as they wrote it down. Therefore, if he says one something here, it should agree with something over here. There can't be like very contradictory things in the scripture. Secondly is the principle of historical context. That is, every book in the Bible was written into a culture and historical context and addressed actual situations happening in those contexts. And so we need to realize that we're living in a different culture, in a different day. Some of the things in the Bible uh, don't quite make sense to us sometimes because it was written 2,000 years ago. And the book of Ephesus wasn't written, uh, a book of Ephesians, sorry, wasn't written primarily to us. It was written primarily to the Ephesian church and their culture in their day and in their situation. And so when we're interpreting the Bible, we must first understand uh, what they were dealing with, what their culture is like. And this is why there are a lot of things in the Bible that are actually commands that we don't do today. For instance, the Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss. That, that's a clear command in Scripture. And you know what? We don't do that. I don't see people... You know, the greeters aren't grabbing you and kissing you at the door, and, and you know, we're not doing that. We, we give hugs, we shake hands, because, because culturally, in that context, when they said, how are you doing, they'd give you a kiss. And so we take the command seriously that we're to be welcoming and generous and, and those kind of things. We see commands in the Bible that, that like, you're, you're to wash people's feet. That, we don't take that command seriously. If some churches do, but we don't because we understand in that culture that was you know, a very uh, lowly kind of servanthood kind of thing. They wore sandals. Their feet got dirty. We don't wear sandals so much. Their feet doesn't get dirty. So we're always going to need to look at historical context. So we're going to first look at the unity of the Scripture. Is that too loud out there? It just seems really loud today. That's no, good. We're right on. When we look at the unity of Scripture, all throughout the Bible, we see women serving in all kinds of positions, leading people, teaching people, serving people, even having authority over, over men, which the other view says that women should not have. And one of the first gals we meet, and we're just going to look at some of them, is Miriam. When God delivered uh, the Egyptians out of Egypt, he put a leadership team over 
his people. Over the entire nation of Israel, he had three leaders. This is what Micah 6.4 says. I says, it brought, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I delivered you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to lead you. Moses led the law. Aaron was the priest. Miriam was the prophet. There were these three leaders over the nation of Israel, over God's people. Miriam was a female. She had authority over men. She had the ability to prophesy. And in many cases, because prophecy is hearing God's word and speaking it forth, often carries more power than teaching. And so Miriam had this powerful position of leadership. And this is why she was judged so harshly when she sinned. Um, And this, just to encourage you women, that you can aspire to leadership. I mean, if you feel God has gifted you and called you to to lead well, uh, don't think there's a lid that, well, I can't be a leader of God's people because I'm a female. No, we see in the Bible that women have led and taught God's people. And here we see Miriam as one of the leaders over God's people. Another gal we meet in the Old Testament is Deborah. In Judges 4, it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, a wife of Mr. L, was leading Israel at that time. And so again, God placed Deborah, who was a judge, called Judges, there's various judges in the book of Judges, in charge of all of Israel. These are God's people. This is God's nation. God put a woman in charge named Deborah. She was leading Israel at that time. There was no male over her. She was the leader. She would sit under the date palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the Ephraimite hill country. The Israelites would come up to her to have their disputes settled. If you had an issue, you would go up to Deborah and she would decide. And if two men had a dispute, Deborah would make a decision. She had authority over men in this case. In fact, she calls the nation to war, and she summons a man. I mean, again, this is a position of authority. This is a position over the people of Israel. So she summoned Barak. She said to him, is it not true that the Lord God of Israel is commanding you, go, march to Mount Tabor, Take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun, and let's go out and free our country. A woman in charge of all the people of Israel commanding this military leader, who is a man, let's get going, let's, let's go. And so she has this authority, this, this leadership position that God has given her. And again, God may call you as a woman into a position of leadership, of great influence, where, uh, I mean, you're calling men to stand up for God and stand up for Jesus and fight for the faith. This, this may be you. Another gal we meet is a prophet by the name of Halta. Uh, king, uh, uh, Josiah was the king. His nation was a mess. People were worshiping false gods. People were going astray. And the priest stumbled across the book of the law in the temple. Like it had been buried, it had been hidden. And then it says, when the king heard the words of the law of the scroll, so they, they, go, they come and they, they read it to the king. The king tore his clothes. I mean, he realizes how they've missed the Bible. 
how they uh, were not following God's word, and he is heartbroken. He, is, he, is, uh, he tears his clothes. And the king ordered Hilkiah the priest and all his buddies, and he said to them, go seek an oracle from the Lord for me and the people for all of Judah. In other words, we need to hear God's voice on this. We need to find a prophet our nation is a mess. I don't know what to do with a king. We've broken all these laws. I don't know what God's going to do with us. We're in serious trouble. Our nation's in trouble. We need to hear a word from God. Now, who did they go consult? Now, in the day, there were various prophets who were all serving as prophets. They could have gone to the prophet Jeremiah. They could have gone to Zephaniah, Hosea, Habakkuk, and Nahum. They could have gone to any of those prophets I mean, this was a serious, serious enough situation that they're going to go find the best person they can, and who do they choose? And it goes on and says, so Hilkiah the priest and his buddies went to Huldah the prophetess. They go to a female prophet to hear the word to save their nation, and she gives the word, and the king listens. I mean, they could have gone to all these men, but they chose to go to Holden, not because these others weren't available, they could have easily found them, but because obviously Holden was known for her great ministry and her power in leading and the prophetic. Another gal is a Phoebe, this is in the New Testament. Romans 16 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of his people, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. She was a deacon. This is a leadership position. But what's more important here is it says, Paul says, who wrote the book of Romans, I asked you to receive her in the Lord in a way uh, worthy of his people. And most scholars believe that Phoebe was actually the one who was the courier of the book of Romans that she was the one who carried the book of Romans, and therefore you to receive her. And in that day, if you carried a letter, you were the one who most often read the letter and interpreted the letter to the people. And so Phoebe uh, was not only a church leader, but one who carried the book of Romans and uh, probably read it and interpreted it to the church. Another gal we meet is Priscilla. Uh, Romans 18 says, Now a Jew named Apollos... A native of Alexandria arrived in Ephesus. He was an eloquent speaker, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and with great enthusiasm, he spoke and taught accurately the facts about Jesus, although he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak out fearlessly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Now, first of all, what's interesting is uh, with Priscilla and Aquila that Priscilla's name is mentioned first. Now, this wasn't impossible in, in, in Greek literature to have the, the female first, but it was very, very rare to do this. Yet, most of the time when Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in the Bible, Priscilla is mentioned first. And it is probably because she was the one who was more gung-ho in ministry, the one who maybe was a little more theologically astute or whatever it might be. But they take this Apollos guy who was well-versed in the Scripture, who had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and Priscilla and Aquila take him inside, and, and they teach him how to interpret the Bible better. 
And Priscilla was probably the one, because her name is mentioned first, who was kind of leading this, this up with Apollos. She is a lady who is well-versed in the scriptures, very well uh, theologically learned, and she is helping a man to better understand the Bible. And sometimes there are women who understand the Bible incredibly, who uh, know theology a zillion times better than me and can come alongside me and teach me and mentor me. They, they are the Priscilla's. And if you are a woman, don't be afraid of, of helping others learn the Bible, being a teacher, being someone who helps people learn theology. God calls women to these kinds of tasks. Uh, one other gal is a junior, and she is a bit of a controversial, controversial figure. You'll see why in a moment. Romans 16, Paul writes, Greet Andronicus and Junia. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles. So Junia, this text says, is outstanding among the apostles. Uh, for, um, I mean, this, this is why this is controversial, obviously. If Junia is an apostle, it kind of puts an end to the debate. Because she's an apostle, then obviously she can lead, teach, have authority over men. If she's not an apostle, then the argument continues. And so she is a hotly debated figure in the Bible. And, uh, and for some parts of later church history, uh, she was actually underwent a sex change. And in a lot of Bibles, she was a male, Junius. Uh, now scholars don't hold to that because, I mean, 99% of scholars know that this is a female. The argument more is when it says that they are outstanding among the apostles, whether that means she was an apostle or was just kind of hanging out with the apostles. And so those who say women can't have these positions will say she's hanging out with the apostles. And of course, those who say women can do these things say she was among the apostles. And this seems to be what the, uh, the early church held. Uh, one of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, said this, To be an apostle is something great, but, but to be outstanding among the apostles, just think what a wonderful song of praise that is. They were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title apostle. And this is one of the early church fathers. And, and we see that even the early church held it that she was a woman. It wasn't until later on in church history where she underwent a sex change. So all throughout the Bible, when you look at the story of the Bible, you see women leading you see women teaching, you see women having authority, you see women even leading nations, leading God's people. This is the story of the Bible. And so when we're talking about this debate, we need to look at the unity of Scripture, okay? Now, those on the opposing side um, do not begin with the unity of Scripture, begin looking at primarily two verses that those on the opposing view kind of look at, and we'll look at those two verses. And the first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It says, The women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Rather, let them be in submission, as in fact the law says. If they want to find out about something, they should ask their husbands at home, because it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. 
Now, first of all, those who hold that women can't hold certain positions, I mean, most of them don't take this literally, obviously, because women wouldn't be allowed to talk at all, right? Uh, disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Women should be silent in churches, so they shouldn't talk ever. During the prayer time, they shouldn't say anything. They shouldn't talk to their husbands. They shouldn't whisper. They shouldn't, they shouldn't talk. And, and pretty much no one holds that. In fact, if you're actually honest in your scholarship and in your theology, you'll have to admit, you know, nobody fully knows what Paul is actually getting. There's lots of different opinions, but no one is for sure. You can just kind of take your best guess, and there's definitely some ideas that are better than, than others. But even Paul was not being totally literal here in terms of women can never say anything in church because you just roll back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and Paul very clearly says, women can pray in church, women can prophesy in church. In other words, women can, can speak in church. So why here does he say he can't, they can't speak when earlier on he says they can speak? And again, when you look at the unity of Scripture and the testimony of women speaking, teaching, leading, this verse kind of stands out and says, like, what is the deal with this verse? Right? And you can do your own study because there's lots of different ideas. I'm just going to give you one. And it's probably, most likely, at least I think, and you may disagree with me, but because there's lots of different people, way people interpret this. But the text itself says this. If they want to find out something, they should ask their husbands at home. In other words, if they have a question in church, they should ask their husbands at home. And, and this may be what this, this is about. That now that the church was formed and growing and flourishing, the Holy Spirit is poured out on men and women. Women are welcomed into the church because before that in Jewish culture, women weren't even deemed worthy to, uh, to learn the law. It was, it was a man-centered culture. And the early Christians opened up the doors to women to allow them in, but they were not very theologically trained or learned. And so you can imagine someone who doesn't know anything sitting in church listening to a sermon. They'd have lots of questions and really excited about everything. And, and, and maybe they were interrupting the service. Maybe they were always asking their husbands and they weren't listening quietly. And so Paul says, look, you need to learn and, and listen quietly before you speak up or teach or whatever it might be. The other text is this one, and this is sort of the, the major text on this debate. When you talk to people who fight over this, this is the primary text that, you, that they go to. And it says this, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She must remain quiet. Again, if you start at this verse, you go, well, wow, I guess women should never teach. But if you start with the unity of Scripture, all of a sudden you realize this verse is a bit odd because we see women teaching throughout the Bible. We see women exercising authority over men throughout the Bible, as we've seen. And women aren't always to be totally quiet. Paul said they can pray and, and prophesy in church. And again, prophecy carries often as much weight as, as teaching. So what is the deal with this verse? Because it stands out a little odd. Again, I want to look at this in context because this whole passage where this verse is housed is an interesting passage uh, because people will take that verse, women should not have authority over man, and they, you need to take that literally, but in the context, there's a lot of commands that we don't take literally today. And so let me read through this passage. Paul says, I desire that in every place 
the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold pearls, gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, let me show you why this becomes a more complicated passage. Let's look at some of the commands in there. First of all, Paul says, men should pray and lift holy hands. Now, do we take that command seriously? Yes, men should pray. But do we command that every man pray with hands lifted high? No. I mean, we do prayer times here, prayer meetings. We're not saying every man here has to pray with their hands lifted high. No, because we first, when you interpret the Bible, you go, what's the historical context? What, who was this written to? And then that day, you know how they prayed? Their eyes open, looking to the heavens with their hands up. That's how they prayed. In our culture, we pray with our eyes closed, usually like this. They prayed like this. So we understand that Paul is saying that we are to pray. And we pray a little different in our culture, and that's, and that's okay. So all of a sudden, we see one that we follow, one that we don't. Without anger or quarreling, yep, uh, that's one that we follow. We don't want people fighting or quarreling. We don't want people fighting over this issue that we're talking about today, right? Uh, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Yeah, we still hold that today. Women should dress modestly, they should have self-control, but then it says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. People have braided hair, people wear jewelry, I mean, people sometimes have expensive jeans on and we're not like, you're going to be kicked out of the church, you need to take this command seriously. Again, because, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, different historical context, right? So, then it goes on and says, but what is proper for women who profess godliness? We still, yeah, this, this is still for today. We follow that. And then it goes on in this, this verse, let a woman uh, learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach, right? Um, I'll get back to this in a second here. Oh, my button got stuck. So here's another one at the bottom. We'll go back to that one. It says, yet she'll be saved through childbearing. Do we believe that? That women are saved through childbearing? No, we don't, because we're like, well, well, that's a weird verse. I mean, what is the context? What is Paul talking about? I mean, this whole passage in various places, okay, we do that, but we don't do this. So the whole passage screams of, what in the world was Paul talking about? What was the historical context? What was going on in the day where Paul was saying you can't wear jewelry and you, you can't wear expensive clothes and women should be quiet when that seems odd because the rest of the Bible we see women having authority over men and teaching. This seems to be an odd passage. So it begs the question, what is the historical context? And before we get that, let me point out one thing about this text where it says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She must remain quiet. This word for authority is never used anywhere else in the Bible. 
It's a very unique word. And because I'm not a Greek scholar, let me uh, throw up a scholar to answer this question about this word. For it does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament. This is not the usual word for authority. Outside the Bible, the word is used of murder, suicide, having dominion over, and some argue of sexual offenses. The original idea seems to have been to thrust oneself. The uses of the word for murder and suicide obviously are not pertinent for this text. If the reference is to authority, it seems likely the negative connotations of this word would require a translation such as domineer, which some translations use. Whatever the meaning, what is prohibited of women with this word seems so negative that it would not be permitted of men either. In other words, this is not just like a loving, godly authority. This is a dominating, one to control, an abusive maybe authority. And we don't let men do that either. So there was something going on in this text where Paul is challenging the way women were dressing, the way they were speaking, uh, the way that they were trying to dominate men. And again, the question is, what was going on in that church that Paul made this command that doesn't seem to fit the story of the Bible? And, and, and scholars uh, talk a lot about what is called the New Roman Woman. The New Roman Woman. What was going on in Paul's day was this, this movement that was taking over many of the cities, uh, many of the nations. In fact, Caesar himself had to lay down a bunch of laws against the new Roman woman because the new Roman woman, their families were falling apart. There's craziness going on. And what it was was this movement where women began to dress very sensual, Women were ashamed of being pregnant, ashamed of children. Women were aborting babies. They were using contraceptives so they wouldn't get pregnant. They were trying to live this free life away from men. They taught that they were better than men and had authority over men. It was a huge problem, especially in Ephesus where this book was written to. Uh, Timothy was a pastor of uh, Ephesus. The temple of Artemis was there. Uh, one early letter here gives a little bit of insight on the new Roman woman. This is from uh, somewhere between 41 to 49 AD. Seneca was a philosopher who was in exile at this time, writing to his mom. Okay, this is Mother's Day. This is what he writes to his mom. Unlike the great majority of women, you never succumbed to immorality. So he says the great majority of women were moving on this new Roman uh, woman movement, the worst evil of our time. Jewels and pearls have not moved you. You never thought of wealth as the greatest gift to the human race. You have not been perverted by the imitation of worse women who lead even the, the virtuous into pitfalls. And this is one of the things they were doing. They were standing up on the soapbox, trying to get other women to follow them. They were trying to lead women into this movement. You have not been perverted by the imitation of worse women who lead even the virtuous into pitfalls. You have never blushed for the number of children. They're ashamed of their kids. As if taunted you with, uh, with your years, never have you in the manner of other women uh, whose only recommendation lies in their beauty tried to conceal your pregnancy as though it were indecent. You have not crushed the hope of children that were being nurtured in your body. You have not defiled your face with paints and cosmetics. 
Never have you fancied the kind of dress that exposed no greater nakedness by being removed. Your only ornament, the kind of beauty that the time does not tarnish, is the greatest honor of modesty. And he writes this beautiful letter to his mom, encouraging her that she is not getting involved in this movement of the new Roman woman. Now you take that context Everybody in the church is dealing with this. And Paul writes this letter to this church, and this passage is read that women need to dress modestly and not sensually. And, and he says, I don't allow them to teach or have this domineering authority over men. Immediately, people would think and understand what Paul was talking about. This movement in my culture, this, the new Roman woman, this, this is what would go in their mind. For us, it doesn't because we're in a different historical context. I mean, Paul even goes on in this Bible, in the text, and seems to bring up the issue of the new Roman woman even further, where he says about widows, they, should, uh, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, because this is what they're running from. And this is probably what the comment when he says, Women will be saved through childbearing, not meaning that they're going to be saved by salvation, but that motherhood's a good thing. Paul's encouraging back to the home, back to the family, because they were running from the family and uh, managing their households and giving the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. This movement was turning people away because these women are speaking up. And, and so Paul writes to the pastor, who's probably freaking out, what should I do? And Paul says, here's the deal. He lays down some laws about dress. He lays down some laws about having these women stand in front of the church with their soapbox, trying to encourage others because they're teaching things they should not. And says, go back to the home. Be saved through childbearing, through, through faith, and those kind of things. It's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with being a mom. And so all of a sudden you read this text in this light, and you go, okay, now I understand why this text seems so odd when the rest of the scripture has men having authority over men and or men women having authority over men and teaching and those kinds kinds of things and a lot more to that text but uh, uh we're running out of time <clears throat> um some people say well why then did jesus only have male disciples okay if this this were so and the reality is jesus had many disciples some of those were women but it's true the 12 disciples were all males. There's not a woman on there. But did you know that all 12 males were all Jewish? There wasn't a, a Gentile on there. So if you use that, say, well, they all have to be males because Jesus only had males. Well, they were all Jewish. So every elder, every pastor who was not a Jew should quit their job, including me, right? The movement was, Jesus said, this begins with the Jews and it would spread into the Gentile world and, and the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 2. It says, and in the last days, that's, that's today, and it started at Pentecost, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And this is big, male and female. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Again, prophecy is a weighty matter. Hearing from God, speaking out, has often more authority, more power than teaching, and, and the Holy Spirit is poured out. We see women prophets throughout the Bible, and this is the gospel, 
that, that it's not about gender. It's, it's about God pouring his spirit on all people, male and female. And if God has gifted and called someone to lead or teach or go into full-time ministry, I say, follow the spirit's leading. That is a wonderful thing because there is no division in the gospel, right? Uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is the good news. And I would just encourage you, women, that if you've been holding back because you have this fear that I can't do certain things because I'm a woman, I say, hey, follow God's leading. God has blessed you with teaching gifts, with leadership gifts, Get use them. That's the most faithful thing you can do, to use them to bless God's people and to bless the church. Now, if you are here and you're like, I hated that sermon. I got so many things I could say back to you, and I know you could for sure. Uh, here's where we sit on this issue when there's those here that uh, don't agree. And that is, this is a statement from the, the, our denomination, and our church uses this too. The covenant denomination believes that membership should be open to all who trust in Christ. Matters on which Christians have not agreed must not be a source of division. So we welcome you here. We love you here. Uh, we want to worship you. Through. We don't think we should divide over this issue. But we as a church hold that uh, we want to have women involved. And so we are going to have women involved. And so we'd ask that you, if you're like, I just don't agree with that, uh, here are some things that we as a church ask from you. If you're going to hang with us, number one, your freedom of conscience will be respected, okay? Uh, we're not going to kick you out of this church. We're going to love you as much as we love anyone else. We want to welcome you. We want to worship you. We respect it. I mean, I totally respect this position because I understand that they love Jesus and, and they study the Bible and that's kind of what they think. But you just need to know you are choosing a position that is not central to a covenant or a junction church understanding of faith, doctrine, and conduct. Secondly, we ask that you respect and support those women who are called to serve in ministry and leadership, okay? We have women who are elders in this church, and, and you're called to respect your leaders. And if you don't agree with women elders, you can't be like, you know, giving them half a peace sign when they're turned around, and, you know, I know you wouldn't do that, but. Uh, number three, uh, recognize that your position has a profound effect on the freedom of others to follow God's leading into ministry. I mean, if you're always telling people, women can't do this, they can't do this, then women are going to like, oh, maybe I can't do this. And, and they're not going to be following the heart and call of God. And we want to encourage our women to follow whatever gifts and calling God has placed on them. And number four, to exercise caution not to quench the spirit in the lives of others. That's we will respect your conscience, your belief in this, but careful about quenching the spirit in the lives of others. And if we have a woman who's excited to lead and excited to teach, and I'm going to encourage them, but make sure you're not discouraging them and trying to quench what the Spirit is doing in their lives, okay? Uh, our desire is to serve Jesus. Our desire is to love Jesus. And, and we want to make sure that all of us are using our gifts in that way. And if you're a woman who has leadership gifts or teaching gifts, follow the heart of God. And we want to encourage you. And we want you to step out because we really do feel that this is a biblical matter and this is an important matter and it's just an aspect of this uh, church we're involved in. All right? Good.